Daryl Royal was an All-American football player who became one of college football's most acclaimed and innovative coaches. He became the coach at the University of Texas here in Austin back in 1957. And in the season before he took over, the team had won only one game. By the time he retired 20 years later, he had coached the Longhorns to 11 Southwest Conference championships, 16 bowl appearances, and three national championships. He was named National Coach of the Year during that period of time five times, and then he was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame in 1983. Now, he never had a losing team, but a few of his early seasons were less than stellar. One year early on, after losing a couple of games back-to-back, someone asked him, so coach, are you going to make any big changes? And he replied, you know, there's an old saying, you dance with the one that brung you. He had always favored the ground game. As for passing, he said, there's only three things that can happen, and two of them are bad. So determined to minimize passing the ball, about three years later, the coach introduced a play that was largely devised by his assistant, Emery Ballard, called the wishbone. It's called the wishbone because of the shape that the players make when they line up for this particular um, play. Now, the brilliance of this play is that it provides several options once the ball is in play, but all of them keep the ball out of the air. It was a huge success. In fact, the wishbone brought Royal and UT so many wins that other teams began to adopt it. You dance with the one that brung you. That's what Coach Royal did. He may have learned a few new dance moves, but he never abandoned his dance partner. You dance with the one that brung you. It was one of Royal's favorite sayings, but he didn't coin the phrase. Doyne Phillips, managing editor for Southern Writers Magazine, says, he says this about it. I'm sure that the saying originally meant exactly what it states. You should dance with the one that brought you to the dance. But over time, it has evolved to mean that you stay the course with the talent or the process or the system that got you here. I mean, too often... When we're faced with challenges, we begin to second-guess our success, right? We start to change processes, change what we've done to get where we are. Or maybe we just start to get lazy and we take shortcuts. Either way, we lose sight of the one that brung us, and we begin to dance with what appears to be a more attractive dance partner. Ultimately, we lose our groove. Well, in today's scripture presentation, you saw Jesus inviting us to the dance. And as we lit the disco ball as a metaphor for the way that God's light pierces the darkness in spectacular and universal fashion, inviting us all to dance with the divine one, the one that brung us in the first place. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. And the word became flesh 
and made his home among us. These are probably my favorite words in the Bible. If not, they certainly rank among the highest. I love these words. I love them for so many reasons. I love the poetry. I love the logical progression. I love that they're cosmic. But mostly what I love about these words is that John's gospel is crystal clear from the very beginning by taking us back to the beginning about who Jesus is. Jesus is the capital T word who was God in the very beginning and through whom all that is came into being. Jesus is the creator in the flesh. It's an audacious claim. And it's just a little bit scandalous. John's gospel makes the very highest Christological claim of all four gospels. And what I mean by that is that in John's gospel, he uses explicit language to express the very highest view of who Jesus is. The word who was God and became flesh. And the way that John makes this claim, it's brilliant. You know, y'all have heard the saying, know your audience. Well, the writer of John's gospel knew his audience. In the early years of Christianity, Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, they continued to gather alongside their Jewish brothers and sisters for worship in the temple. An understanding of who Jesus was was an internal debate. They were discussing among themselves, who is this Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? It's similar to many of the debates that are within the Christian church today or even our denomination. However, when the second Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70, Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and Jews who did not, they began to go their separate ways. It was during these later years of the first century, probably around the year 90, that John's gospel was written. And he wrote his gospel so that both Jews and Gentiles could hear what he had to say. John's gospel makes a case for Jesus as the Messiah and as a means to a relationship with God that is outside of Israel, even outside the Jewish faith, by using nuanced understandings of the Greek word logos to connect Jesus to both his Greek and his Jewish audience. For John's First of all, logos is the Greek word that's translated here in our scripture reading as word. But in John's time, logos had different nuanced meanings depending on who you were, who was hearing it, who was using the word. For non-Jewish Greeks, the word logos meant a cosmic and rational word of Greek philosophy. Logos was the ordering force of reason that resides in the cosmos and in the human mind. For John's Jewish hearers, 
this word logos, would evoke the creative wisdom of Genesis 1. Remember way back at the beginning of Scripture, the creative word of God that's embodied in creation, that word that orders what was chaos and speaks creation into being? Remember the words, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God uses the power of word to speak creation into being. And the Jews would have heard this. The Hellenistic Jews, those are Jews who spoke primarily Greek, for them it would also mean the word of wisdom and Torah or law. Their understanding of the word logos would be the manifestation of the divine will that is revealed in the Torah and that orders reality. So John's use of logos is brilliant because it creates a means for non-Jewish Greeks and for Jews alike to begin to hear the story of the cosmos and the history of Jesus as the same story. Jesus, through his birth, life, death, and resurrection, become the enfleshed living into of wisdom, Torah, reason, and the ordering force of reality. And John's claim that the divine wisdom and creativity became flesh in Jesus the Christ, this also became the primary text upon which our current understanding of Trinity stands. Now, the early church argued vehemently over the implications of John's words at the beginning of his book. But they became the words that were the foundation upon which our theology of Trinity stand. If the word made flesh in Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, when God's holy wind, the Spirit, swept over the waters, if that was God, then what exactly does that mean? And how do we talk about it? In the year 325, a Christian council was held in Nicaea, and after heated debate about this particular issue, the church finally settled on this language. They said that we worship one God in three divine persons, and the persons of the Trinity are distinct. They're distinct persons, yet they are one in substance, essence, or nature. The relationship between the three divine persons of the Trinity are often conceived of as a divine dance, where these distinct persons eternally and simultaneously pour themselves out for and fully receive each other. It's an intimate dance. And it expresses the witness of God in Scripture and our experience of God in life as God the Father that begets or creates, as God the Son or the begotten who redeems, and as God the Holy Spirit who enlivens us and leads us. They dance eternally with one another in divine and intimate relationship. And here's the thing, they invite 
us to dance with them. Emery Ballard, Coach Royal's assistant, the one who helped him conceive of the wishbone, he went on to be a very successful coach himself at Texas A&M. There are some who say he was the best coach the Aggies ever had. Maybe because he never abandoned his dance partner. In 1974 and 1975, he ran the wishbone against UT, and he beat Coach Royal. Now, while both coaches lost some games along the way, their careers largely were ones of outstanding success because they kept dancing with the one that brung them. You've got to dance with the one that brung you. It's easy to be seduced by other dancers, by other partners, especially when we face challenges or when we face setbacks. When things aren't going exactly as we'd hoped, we feel maybe out of step or at a distance from God. The Jews who followed Christ would continue to dance with the one who'd brung them, the creator of the universe. And the Greeks who weren't Jewish would continue to dance with the ones who'd brung them both recognizing this one as Jesus, the Christ, whose light pierces the darkness in spectacular fashion, revealing alongside himself both the Father and the Spirit, all three in divine dance, a dance into which each and every one of us is invited Will we dance with the one that brung us? Amen.